With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. You know, I wrote a book to address precisely this question, and I had to ask myself, what is really impossible? If you watch uh, Harry Potter and you watch a magic show, is it possible that you can take a rabbit out of a hat with nanotechnology create all sorts of life forms just by thinking about it. And then you begin to realize that very few things are actually impossible. But wait a minute. When you say very few, you really mean nothing. Almost nothing. No, no. <laughs> if you say almost, give me an example of something that is impossible. So, so let me ask this to both of you. It seems like the same feeling of awe that drives you to be excited about Star Trek or the blues or writing and for you physics it's that's what keeps you going that's what my book is all about right so what I do appreciate is it's sort of like you guys have the ignition key turned on of that sense of awe that's it So I am so excited to have William Shatner on the show. And William Shatner just came out with a book, Live Long and dot, 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 what I learned along the way. You got it. Like Bill? What? Will? Bill? Will? Bill, Bill, Bill. Bill, uh, I can't believe you're 87 years old. I can't believe it either. It makes two of us. Does it feel, like, do you wake up and say to yourself, you know, I feel, I'm going to ask your wife, Elizabeth, actually. Does he say, I feel like I'm 25. What am I doing in this 87-year-old body? He doesn't need to say anything. He just acts like 25. <laughs> how, how, how does he act that way? <laughs> what, what, how, how does he act that way? Does he jump out of airplanes still or anything? Well, he would if, he, if uh, there was one available, I'm sure. But um, <laughs> no, he just gets up and gets thinking about things and it's blast off. So, so you, you mentioned several... I, I, I feel like there's a lot of things I want to cover about the book and about your life, but really the most compelling thing for me is... You're going strong at 87. I don't mean this like in a, an insulting way or whatever. I don't take it as an insult. Like it seems like big, a big part of your life philosophy is don't die. Well, the, all the 87-year-olds I know are dead. Uh, well, they didn't follow my <laughs> advice. I, I kept telling them, don't die, and they died. Yeah, they made that mistake. And, and what, so what, what do you think was the, as you've seen them die, what do you think was the critical mistake they made? They died. I know they die, but I, but, but why? <laughs> That's the eternal question. 
religions have been based on why. But I feel I like can't I can't answer why. Why did they die? They changed their mind about living, okay? Somewhere along in their body, in their mind, they said, it's time to turn off. But or something said turn off. I think that's right, though. I think you almost make not quite a, a semi-conscious decision. It's sort of like you quoting George Burns in the book and saying, uh, I'll, as long as I'm booked, I'll stay alive. Right. And well, I feel like you have the same philosophy. You say, you say if you, I think you're afraid almost to not say yes to things because then you'll die. <laughs> well, I watched, I, I was- I'm getting I, right into it. <laughs> I had my, my cheek on the body of my beloved dog who was dying on the kitchen floor, my wife and I. We were keening over him and he had waited for me to come out from out of town and he's lay on the floor, he's waiting for me, we think. And I lay down beside him and I saw his eyes glaze over and I put my hand on him and his eyes opened up and I said, I'm here. And he kind of weakly and then he started to die again. And I said, don't die now. And he kind of woke up a little bit and then he went and he died right there. He died waiting for me. He decided, I'm stiff, I'm old, I, it's time to go. My poop doesn't come out anymore. I just... You know, this, and it's enough already. I heard his jokes so many times. It's time to go. And my beloved dog died in my arms. He decided to go. Okay? That's the way it's going to be. So, so it seems like the way you decide not to go, and you, you mention it in various ways in the book, is, you know, you, you, you love your work, you're never going to retire, so you're always finding new things to do, new things to say yes to. Which, by the way, I want to talk to you about new albums and books and tours and things. Tell me, so what are you saying yes well, to? Well, I'm, I'm, yes I'm saying yes, look, I've got a country music album. It's great, it's a great country music album. It's getting great reviews. Like, this is my favorite song, that's my favorite song. People are loving it. I loved doing it. Did it with uh, Jeff Cook of the group Alabama, and it's it's terrific. It's I, I I went I did the Nashville scene. I was I recorded in Nashville. I used Nashville people to write the songs. I chose the songs. I got the order of the songs. It's it's fantastic. Uh, 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 Why not me is the name of the album based on one of the songs in the album. I was asked to do a Christmas album, calling it Shatner Claus. <laughs> funny song, funny title. Hopefully catchy enough to attract your attention. But there's some really serious material in the Christmas album in which I try to fuse the spoken word with music as best I can. I'm learning how to do it, and I'm getting better and better at doing it. So if you were to listen to the albums, you'd see what, I'm, what it is I'm trying to do. And then this book is getting great notices, and people are, are enjoying it. So there's these three things, too. Then I'm on tour with... Uh, a film called The Wrath of Khan, which is one of the Star Trek films, and they play the film, and I come on stage for an hour and talk and entertain and talk about the film or not. And, and then I'm going to Australia. I did a one-man show in, in New York uh, a few years ago and toured sure. that around the States, and I'm going to Australia to tour that and New Zealand uh, in October, and then I'm planning, uh, they want me to do a blues album. And I'm intrigued by the blues. Now, the blues, the way, uh, what's her name done it? Uh, uh, just died. Uh, Aretha Franklin. Aretha Franklin. She breathes the note and the note comes out 
like she sang it when she was two in the Baptist church. That's part of her DNA. It's not part of my DNA. I have to acquire it. But how do you acquire blues when you don't sustain a note? Like one of the songs in the in the um, in the uh, uh, country music album is "I Should Have Loved Her," and the guy who demonstrated the song, it's right out of the Brill Building. Do you remember anything about the Brill Building in Times Square where they would play the piano and there would be a, a songwriter in each of the offices of the Brill Building in Times Square? And on a warm summer's day, you would hear cacophony of piano players playing their songs for Al Jolson and, 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 and Cantor and, and all those people. Those people, that, that facility has moved to Nashville, and there are all these writers in Nashville demonstrating their songs. So they demonstrated their songs to me by phone, electronically. I picked this one, I picked that one. Then I had their performance on my phone, which I learned, and there is this song with the guy sustaining the note, I should have loved, and he sustains the note, loved. And you realize the anguish. I did this, I did that, but what I should have done is, I should have loved. So and he so, sustains the note. How do you do that with the spoken word? That was the question. And, and then you'll listen to what I do with it. So you take, will you take like voice lessons? To no, capture? no, it's the meaning. It's the meaning of the song that I aim for. It's the spoken word while doing the music at the same time. I'm trying a new, a new genre, if you will, or yeah. uh, another genre with some variations on it. Well, it seems like that's the story of this great adventure you've been on since you were six years old on your that, first radio that's show. That's exactly right. Thank you for saying that. So, so, so again, like, you know, on the one hand, you admit you've been very fortunate, but on the other hand, you have this philosophy, which I'm really curious about, of repeatedly saying yes. And well, the book, uh, Live Long and Ellipse, which the ellipse is the balancing point. Live long, yes, you can do that. But what are you going to do with those three dots? What, how are you going to make your decisions based on those three dots? Because those three dots are critically important. Live long and what are you going to do? You're going to say yes to life, which is what the book advocates. Say yes to life. But how do you know what to say? I feel like if I said yes to Australia and New Zealand, yeah. back to Nashville, yeah. let's drive to Joliet in yeah. a blizzard. I, well, let's I would drive be dead to Joliet. <laughs> you did it. I, I know. did with a good in paintball. January 2016. Exactly, exactly. So, so, so do you, what do you, how do you learn what to say yes to? Well, you obviously love many things. Well, you love doing many but, things. But you, the other part of that, is nothing is for sure. I know, I sense that when I walk at that door, I'm going to be hit by a car, okay? I'm going to die the moment I leave here. The last thing you'll hear me say is, live long and bang, and I hit by a bus. This podcast would be huge. It would be viral huge, be huge. So you, <laughs> in your most intimate of minds, you wish that would happen. No, no, no. no. Well, secretly, yeah. secretly. If he only died when he left this building, I would have this biggest podcast and all those people who got me to sign an autograph double their money immediately. Uh -huh. And if you hold on to it longer, maybe triple. You know? Well, you mentioned how less people start, started asking you for your autograph. More and more. When, and I'm thinking, why are they doing that? And then I realize it's because they think he's going to die. And I'm going to fool them. I'm not going to die and the, and the autograph will be worthless. <laughs> That's sort of like, actually, just this is on a weird tangent, but 
people used to buy the life insurance policies in the early 90s of AIDS victims. And then all those life insurance policies became worthless because essentially AIDS was prolonged forever. Oh, right. How interesting. But would an insurance company write an insurance policy? Yeah, yeah, on was, an AIDS victim. Yeah, yeah, it was. That's it, a precondition. Would they were well, doing? Well, that no, it's they would write it, and then the vic- person would find out he had AIDS, and so they would be. Oh, you mean they would say the person? And so, and so, like a billionaire would say, "Hey, I'll give you this in advance, so you can enjoy your life." Oh, and, give me your policy. Yeah, and they get would get, buy it at a discount. Did that really happen? Yeah, yeah, but My then God, they all that's lost worse money. Than, Hyenas feasting on a body. Yeah, yeah, but it all—they all lost money anyway because the the AIDS cocktail started, you know, HIV cocktails. Right, right, and, right. So anyway, on a tangent, but uh, no, but a deep tangent. Yeah, we talked about hyenas feasting on a body. What could be better? Yeah, exactly. Stand up comedy. The um, so saying yes, you don't know what's going to what's going to work and what's not going to work. Saying a stand up comedy, you you're going to tell a joke. I I was asked. Years and years ago, do a stand-up routine. I thought, well, you know what I'll do? I've always admired. Stand-up is the purest form of artistry that I know of. It is a great stand-up comic is is the great artist, in my opinion. So I thought, what would happen if Captain Kirk, I'm the captain of the universe, and I'm I'm going to do stand-up comedy, and I come out, and I'm Captain Kirk, and I'm doing uh, Henny Youngman, take my wife, please. You know, uh, uh, do all the old things. Nothing works for Captain Kirk. Is that a funny concept? That is a funny concept. Did you, did you, so you tried it. And, and it happened? didn't work. But, and I'm and watching he, the head of the, you, you know, it was the comedy club. There was one guy, the guy, the, the sensational guy who, who fathers all the stand-up comics. Uh-huh. There's this heavyset guy who's like the father of all the, who was like Dangerfield or no, no, no. It was the owner of the, of the premises whose place, the comedy club, it was his comedy club. Uh-huh. There's a famous guy. Well, he was there. Uh, Manny Dorman on the comedy cellar or downtown. No, or? no, no. Jane Who? Jane at the left it could have been anyway, the owner of the comedy club on, Oh, I'm in New York in yeah. Los Angeles. Uh, sure. Who was Mitzi Shore's husband? There you go. That's guy. He'll look, he'll look okay, up. so say it's like Mitzi Shore. Uh. So she's standing there watching me uh, do this thing. So I'm the Captain Kirk saying all these stock, non, non-funny jokes. And I think that's going to be funny. Here is the captain of the Enterprise thinking that, uh, that he's going to try and be a stand-up comic, and he fails, and that's funny. That, that does sound funny, actually. Right. <laughs> It wasn't, I didn't do it right or it wasn't funny. And I'm there saying these stupid jokes and people are looking at me like, what is he doing? But them looking at you asking, what is he doing? That's it's funny. funny. <laughs> That's right. That was my esoteric take on what yeah. I was doing. But I was watching uh, Shore's husband <laughs> not looking too pleased. I bet you ne- if that His was mouth now turned what, down. I bet you that would be a, a viral YouTube video. That would be huge. Well, that would be like you reading gone. Sarah Palin. It's long gone, and I'm not about. To, I'm not <laughs> about to do it again. But it was really embarrassing. I got up there and I thought that could be, along with many others, the most embarrassing moment of my life. But it sounds like even from the beginning, from the early '60s to now, you have. You, you not only did have a reputation of doing this, you do this, you say yes to so much. 
like I still can't imagine what you just said. Going to Australia, then New Zealand, then then recording a blues album, then then whatever the next thing and the next thing is. Yeah, but look what's happening. So so I've told just told you about a failure, uh, and 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 that failure because I'm enamored of stand up comedy, and I watch a lot of stand up comedy uh, uh, that's been recorded. Uh, I watch it avidly, and I'd sometimes play two three times. See what the guy is doing. The the, the magic of Telling a joke, and especially a political joke, a, a, a joke that's uh, yeah. topical. Uh, so the guy's not only being uh, political and humorous and funny, but he's making a comment, and it's on many levels. But comics make mistakes all the time. They tell a joke that really isn't funny, or they go over the. We've seen a lot of those cases where they've go, gone over the line. As somebody said to me when when uh, when they made a joke about something too soon. And it was too soon. Uh, uh, they were not funny, and they got castigated for it. Really ripped. So comics make mistakes all the time in fashioning a comedy routine. Well, I'll throw that joke out. That didn't work, and that's too long. I'll edit that down. That's the way you perfect your comedy routine by making mistakes. That's the way you got to live your life by saying yes. Tell the joke. It doesn't work. Forget the joke. So what would you say no to now? It doesn't sound like you would say Stand no. Stand up comedy. <laughs> <laughs> That's that is a good bet. Uh, what would you say, what would you actually say no to in terms of like if someone said, you know, hey, Bill. Go ahead. Okay, we give, want me a, you to, give me a crazy suggestion. We want you to do a, a, a five-season commitment on a, a, a reality show. Yes, <laughs> but I'll only appear occasionally. Okay, so you have so you compromise. You have negotiations. Well, hey, I, I, five seasons. I, you know, you you may be watching my death throes. You know, let's film your death throes. Oh, it hurts. That's good. God, do it again. Oh, it hurts. No, a little louder. Okay, we want you to do a world tour around the world twice, and say every sixty cities in the United States, then sixty cities in Europe, then eighty cities in Russia. Uh, and I'm talking to the producer. Yeah. Uh, listen, producer. There aren't that number of cities in the world, okay? <laughs> All uh, right. So you're obviously nuts. So you, I'm not going to say yes to. Right, right. So, so, and even in the beginning of your career, it seems like you were known. I mean, you were known for saying yeah, You were on so many things: Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Outer Limits. I was Twilight making Zone. a living. I had three kids to put through school. And then, don't forget that there is a handful uh, of actors who make these multitude of millions of dollars for standing around six months at a time while they make an epic film. And they get these 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollars. You don't have to make many of them before you can retire and not worry about paying the rent. The rest of us, even though we're names, have a standard of living that needs to be, they would like it to be maintained, which requires them to work. So you have to get a job. You have to do the movies. You got to do the smaller movies. You do the television show. You go on location someplace you'd rather not go because the money is good. That's a very important part of what actors, except for that handful, do. So, I mean, you, I watched a, a movie on the airplane coming into New York from Los Angeles called Rampage. It's the worst movie I've ever seen. <laughs> that is, a, why would that star do that movie, right? And, you, and, and there are these animals from from uh, old Japanese films that uh, you can't kill them. And they, it's bizarre. It's stupid. And, and why did he do it? Why did he do it? I don't know why he said yes. 
to that. He's also a producer of it, so maybe that's why he said yes to that. But it's a dumb, and I, and I knew it was going to be dumb, and I watched, I said yes to watching it because I wanted to see a dumb movie that I hadn't made. So so let's actually take take one of these things you said yes to, which is obviously Star Trek, this weird show, weird exactly. science fiction show that no one knew whether or not it was going to be yeah. a success. Like Like day one, did you guys look around at each other and say, this is uh, gonna flop. Like, what, what, what were you thinking? Well, day imagine one? Uh, uh, take any alien, uh, you know, that we meet during the week, and and you think that is, I don't know about that one. I, you know, that's. On the other hand, there were moments when you play split personalities or uh, old uh, versions or. Uh, double versions or I mean there was some usually the mix was intriguing as hell something yeah. that no actor would be asked to play except on a on a science fiction show in which I don't think there were any or many uh, and 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 it was novel and it was interesting and they were asking me to do things that I'd never even thought of, but how would you do that? What would you do? And, and you have to do it quickly. You have to do it now, like you and I are talking. You're going to be there in that moment. There's no time to prepare. Let's see you. And let me look that up. And what do you think? There's none of that. It's you put on a wardrobe and you, and you go. And you're there doing it spontaneously like we are. So that's like intriguing. And you do three years of that. You think, well, all right. So some of the stupid dialogue, nobody will never understand you, you try and memorize it but 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 okay so then were you guys surprised when it was canceled no we were being canceled every year really? we were being canceled every year i didn't know that yeah oh yeah every year after the first year there were there was a, a pseudo write-in campaign and uh, the, they were canceling and they weren't canceling i don't know how true that is and the third year we limped along uh friday night were the ratings like not good or what was the they reason were like in the 40s like we were 40th or 45th, so just not over the line to be canceled, but not good enough to renew, and we were in the nether world, and it came to an end on the third season. And so at the end, you know, you, you, you didn't necessarily have a, a next thing lined up. You were basically, this is what I don't understand. I think a lot of people don't know this. You were basically living out of a truck to support yourself. Well, it's not quite as bad as that. <laughs> uh, I mean, it was bad. I was, uh, they didn't pay us that well. Uh, well what's the economics of that? Like, like now a, a TV, uh, a guy in a, in a main primetime TV show would be making, you know, over 100000 an episode. Right. One twentieth of that was uh, of a fair salary for a lead on a television show. And no residuals because it was prior to the union realizing, hey, wait a minute, they're playing these all the time and nobody's getting paid. So two, three, four years later, residuals, the actors were getting residuals. But our cast never got a penny huh. for all the billions of dollars that uh, the studios made. Um, but saying yes to the various things in your life is critically important. So these albums are critically important to, to, perfect, to perfecting what it is you want to do. You have to fail the joke, is what I say. And the other thing I wanted to say is I'm on tour. Go to williamshatner.com and you'll find it when I'm in a city next to you. And, and, and one of the things that I do a lot of is bicycle, uh, electric bicycle. So I said yes to an electric bicycle company, Pedego, and my family and I do a lot of uh, bicycling with electric bikes, and that has brought the family together because I can keep up with the 
the hot dog 13-year-old. But when, when you were at this low point, though, like after Star Trek was canceled, how did you kind of come, like, were you depressed? Like, how did you come back from... Well, so I didn't have any money. What was the low point? A, a $15 check I couldn't cash. And then I thought, well, I'll go on summer tour. Uh, so I put together a, a summer package for a dinner, th- for uh, not dinner theaters, a summer theaters back east. I had a truck. I put a cab on the back of the truck, took my dog, and I drove across the country. I toured these 13 weeks, lived in the back of the thing, hooked up to the theater hose and, and plug. I'd been a star in Star Trek, and I was living in the back of the truck. And then I drove back across the country to and get home. And what were you doing? Like, what were you doing on tour? I did uh, A Girl in My Soup. I did, I did this one set, funny Broadway comedies that were all the rage at the time. So you would like be an actor in them? or Oh, yeah. I produced, directed, directed and acted in them. At, and I usually had somebody else with a name value as well. And then at what point did you realize, wait a second, there's somehow this is coming back. Like Star Trek is starting to get this, become this phenomenon. About six years later, five, six years later, I'm skiing in a ski area up in Los Angeles, Mammoth, and somebody comes up to me and says, have you uh, have been to the bar? So I said, I know. Well, they're playing this funny film of you. What the hell are you talking about? And I go down to the bar, and they're playing what were excerpts. Uh, I forgot what they call them. Uh, But the editors had put together all the foolish things that I had been doing, banging into doors and making jokes and things like that. And, And Roddenberry had sold these films that were made for the cast uh, for Christmas parties. He was selling them, uh, making us look like the fool, but he was making money on it. And I thought, why would anybody want to watch that six years later? And then the calls started to come. We're thinking of doing this, doing that, doing this. and finally- So did that trigger like basically everybody wanting to replay the original episodes, like just Roddenberry's no, uh, collection they, of bloopers? I or? think it was more businesslike than that. I think they discovered that by playing an episode of Star Trek at a proper hour at a local station, the numbers uh, told them that people were watching. And so then they played more and more people were watching. And then they realized that uh, there was interest, uh, that the American audience had a deeper interest in this thing called Star Trek. And then when Star Wars came about, the people at Paramount thought, well, we've got this Star Trek. Let's see if we can do that. And so they made a big movie, and it failed. The, uh, the first movie, but it still, it still was big enough that they kept making more well, movies. Well, Robert and- Wise was one of the big directors at the time, and he directed that film. And, uh, and so it got a lot of publicity. It didn't actually fail. It was not a great movie, but it wasn't terrible. So I just want to mention uh, Michio Kaku is here. No. Yes. What's Michio, Michio doing here? Uh, say hello, Michio. William hello. Shatner. Where are you? Right here. Hi. I interviewed Michio. You know that for a, a wonderful uh, half hour, hour show that we did. You remember that? Oh, yes. Michio's been on the podcast. I know. <laughs> I, I said yes to doing a show about the universe, and I ended up interviewing Stephen Hawking. His la- it may have been his last interview. And uh, had dinner with him, as a matter of fact. Had dinner with Stephen Hawking in Cambridge, all as a result of you saying yes to letting me interview you. Well, Mitchell, what did, what did Bill ask you on the interview? Oh, he would, he's interviewed all the time. 
Why would he remember an innocuous question <laughs> by little old me? Yeah, and uh, Jake, we get, do we have audio on, on him? Uh, maybe he has a new one up next. Okay. All right. We can share this. Bitch, you can stay right here for a second. Yes. Hi. Hello, my friend. How are you? You're beautiful. Yeah. I love this man. Bitch, you good to see you again. He's, All right, he's a great scholar. Uh huh. Oh, uh, here, we'll, we'll use. Yeah. Uh... So I have a Star Trek question for both of you. Yeah? So the transporter. You say it's potentially possible decades down the road through quantum entanglement. Did you ever think when you were doing Star Trek that some of this technology would be real? Like even now, you know, our phones now are better than the phones used in Star Trek. Absolutely. Um, you know, uh, quantum physics hadn't been discovered, or maybe it had been uh, uh, 50 years ago. It uh, was still primitive, our understanding of the atom. There was a concept of quantum physics, but they hadn't made it popular, the discoveries uh, of what we now know and the little I know about quantum physics. Uh, uh, Mitchell knows uh, so much more. Uh, but what we now know is that quantum is so mysterious, so bizarre. The laws governing quantum don't seem to, although I think, and I'd like to ask you this question, that Everything is a whole. Everything is united in one of this universe or the 11 others that... Everything is unified. We're all one thing. So that the laws that seem to be not uh, answering New Newtonian laws, uh, 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 quantum physic physical laws, don't seem to be under the same rules as Newtonian laws must be because the you can't have that conflict. Matter and antimatter would destroy each other. So what is bizarre is to our little innocent human eyes. What is working is what gentlemen, uh, a great physicist like he, will discover or his students will discover the unifying laws of nature. And even then, we won't understand it. By golly, I think he's got it. I think he's got it, folks. <laughs> Let's give him a hand. <laughs> Uh, that was part of my stand-up comedy routine. <laughs> yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and... I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and Having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb 
while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gotta use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I 
how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. HIMS.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See HIMS.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Well, as Einstein once said, the more we learn about the quantum theory, the more we realize that it's correct, and the more we realize how weird it is. It is a very weird theory, except it's just the way the world is. Get used to it. So, so you want to propose that potentially the transporter, which, you know, beam me up, Scotty, you know, they transport somebody from a planet to the ship. You want to propose that the idea of quantum entanglement, observing quanta here will affect quanta here will be the way the mechanism of that teleportation well in principle we cannot teleport individual atoms we can actually I, teleport I thought they could uh, uh, send one molecule from one post to the other i heard that they had been able to do that uh, well atoms photons uh, rubidium cesium atoms they've been able to do next will be to the moon once we have a moon base we're going to teleport to the moon Here, here's a question is it the same atom or just something that atomically is the same it's still a lot if you were alive here are you alive here in the in the new place well it's the information content so it's not really the atom itself we're creating a carbon copy of the original atom so the original guy died but, yeah sorry about that okay. the original but, captain kirk has to die to resurrect him someplace else sorry the reality about that. of it Here's two voices here. You've got the theory and the reality. The reality is that our atoms, molecules, us, the essence of what we are, is so complicated, is so beyond our ability to understand, let alone replicate, that, that it is at this point till the seas inundate us in the next hundred years, we will not be able to do that. So yes, the, th the fun of saying the Star Trek mysticism, uh, 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 warp speed and, and, uh, and, and teleportation and uh, mental, well, I don't know about the mental, but all these mechanical things would be possible, theoretically possible. You need the, the energy of the universe to do uh, warp speed. Uh, harness that, if you will. Yeah. No, when I was a grad student at Berkeley, Star Trek just came out. And a lot of us PhD students in physics, we were mesmerized. We were like stuck on that TV screen watching it. And then we would pick it apart. Scene for scene, we would pick it apart using our understanding of quantum physics. See, here is, here is what the problem, what you're addressing in the problem uh, with uh, people like Metro. They're storytellers. They are as much into science fiction as science fiction writers. What a science fiction writer can imagine, these guys imagine. Imagine a whirlpool of energy. Just imagine. And then maybe two whirlpools and they join. Up and they're speculating on, on what if, what would happen if. Now, let me assemble some facts and I'll buttress my theory with a few mathematical principles that I half believe anyway and I'll do something called string theory that I don't know quite but I'll put it out there anyway because it's it's good fun and it'll make me so people have all these imagined wonderful ideas which are probably true because quantum is so weird that anything we can imagine isn't anywhere near 
as weird as what really is out there. So, so I'm wondering, did the science fiction always lead the science, or did the science ever lead the science fiction? Ah. I think there's a synergy there. One leads to the other and back and forth. They cross-fertilize each other. Some of the greatest scientists of all time were fans of science fiction. And some of the greatest science fiction writers were scientists. That's right. Evan Hubble of the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, he read Jules Verne as a child and quit being a country lawyer, got his PhD in astronomy, and went on to discover the Big Bang. All these guys, everyone that I interviewed, led by him, are mis mis mysticists. They're, they, they, they operate in the mystical area of what if. And because they're romanticists about their work, and the universe and the possible, I mean, just think, the universe is theoretically 13.8 billion years old and it's still expanding. So the mystery is, where is it expanding to? We think the limitation of space, we don't know, there are no limitations. We can't fathom a four-room wall without four walls. It, it, it doesn't exist in our imagination. There has to be an end. There's no end. So it seems like this, it, there's a similarity in that this philosophy of what if applies not only to science, but, but the way you both live life, the way you explore your topics of the future of humanity, the way you explore life, you know, life itself. Like you're doing a blues album, you're going to Australia, you're doing one man shows all over the place. But all the time, all the time, I'm aware that we have this window in which we are born and die and we can view the majesty of what's out there and what's in here and look with awe and wonder at it all yeah. and have a moment that he contributes to some of our knowledge and then it's on to the next See, person. what I do for a living is I work in something called string theory. That's my day job. And in string theory, we, we work in 11-dimensional hyperspace. Now, I realize that every day I work in things that 10, 20, 30 years ago was considered science fiction and preposterous. And now it's the center of gravity of theoretical physics. You cannot go to a physics conference without bumping into people working on string theory, hyperspace, the multiverse. That's where the action is. And just and a few decades. literally come from Star Trek. Well, yes and no. A lot of it. <laughs> the inspiration, sure. The inspiration, absolutely. All these, the uh, many of these yeah. guys, these wonderful scientists who are artists in their, uh, not in their way, they are artists, uh, were stimulated by uh, grotesque uh, stories that were told by by Star Trek, and 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 as kids, they they looked at it and thought, "Wonder if that could, if I could be a star man, and what is out there, and what is that whirling thing? I'm going to get a magnifying glass and look at, and it turns out to be a huge telescope." And then Hubble says, "We're going to put a, we'll, we'll get a telescope up there." And then, oh my God, somebody didn't think of the, the of the uh, of the change in inches to uh, to meters. We with it's it's diffused. We've got we got to send individuals up there to correct the focus of the Hubble friggin' star uh, uh, telescope. And they do. Guy goes in there and adjusts the little thing, and and now we can see it more clearly. And then we we see the majesty of of the of the eagle uh, 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 cloud. And we that's how stars are born. And we're looking on. We're being told fairy tales by these fairy tales uh, uh, tellers who are based on fact, 
But what we have to know, and a huge argument I got into with one of them was dark matter, a black, a dark matter and dark energy are 95 to 98% of the universe. And we don't know what it is. We just know that something strange is out there that is altering the, the, the physical principles by which things should happen and things aren't happening the way. So we now know, or we think we know, that 97% of the universe, we have no idea what's doing, what's happening. So I said, how with that 3% of knowledge that you have, are you making any observations whatsoever? How do you know the speed of light is constant when we don't know 97% of what you're looking at? Yeah, Michelle, how, how do we know? <laughs> well, you know, he's right. Uh, every high school textbook is being rewritten right now because every high school textbook in astronomy in, says in many, that the world... In, in many parts of the country, but not in some parts of the country. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the universe is made out of atoms, they say, but that's not true. Most of the universe is not made out of atoms. <laughs> Only 4% is made out of hydrogen and helium well, in the higher elements. How does he know that when 97% percent is blinding yeah that might be a whole other universe just like we're folded inside of it right you know i wrote a book called physics of the impossible to address precisely this question and i had to ask myself what is really impossible if you watch uh, harry potter and you watch a magic show is it possible that you can turn you know i uh, take a rabbit out of a hat with nanotechnology create all sorts of life forms just by thinking about it. And then you begin to realize that very few things are actually impossible. That if you look at nanotechnology- when you say very few, you really mean nothing. Almost nothing. No, no. If you say almost, give me an example of something that is impossible. Define almost. It's the conservation of matter and energy. We see no violation of it. And even in hyperspace, even in string theory, string theory obeys the conservation of matter and energy. And you mean the conversion uh, from matter to energy? And that's energy right. Matter? You conserve the total amount of matter and energy is constant. Even though they can go back and forth, the total amount of both is constant. How do we know that for sure? Well, every time we've measured it, it works out. Because we're using the same measurements. Yeah. Where you're looking at the same facts. <laughs> what if the facts are different because of 97%? You don't know what it is! I, I'm gonna get back to the transporter. Like, how do they transport down without like nuclear explosions happening? Because that seems to take a lot of energy. Well, we've already teleported individual atoms, photons. Next, we're gonna teleport to outer space. As soon as we get a moon base operating, we're gonna teleport objects to the moon. However, larger molecules are very hard to teleport, okay? Teleporting Captain Kirk, <laughs> that is something. That's a pretty large molecule right there. Maybe in the 23rd century. Are we going to teleport energy? Are we going to send energy to the moon? So uh, We're going to send the information content. But we can't send energy itself? No, we don't, we don't send energy itself. We, en we send the information content. But can't content. you send a light beam that can be converted to energy? Uh, yeah, but we want to do it instantaneously, and we want to do it across the universe. Well, well, oh, right. Well, but the photon will eventually reach eventually, the end of the universe. Yeah, in a few million years, maybe. <laughs> right. Well, apparently, it's that's what it's going to take. Right. But, you know, if you go into hyperspace, perhaps you can get around that. And well, perhaps then there's hyperspace, and then there is the possibility that it's all circular, and that since gravity bends light, 
that the light over there is actually coming from there and it's doing a circuitous route and it's all circular. So we may be going in a circle. So if it's there and I'm here and you can bring space to you, that's hyperspace. So. And so I think that's how you explain the warp drive, well, right? No, that's one method of warp drive. If the universe is circular, the farthest object in the universe is the back of your head. Right. The telescope would see the back of your head because light would go completely around the universe. However, we tried to measure the sides of the universe and the universe seems to be near infinite. So we don't think the universe is circular, but if it was, the farthest object in the universe would be the back yeah, but, of your head. But you see how fallacious that is. You're looking in that direction and you're looking at light. Light is bent by gravity. So the light you're looking at may be over there, but you're saying, okay, I'm looking in that direction, but the back of my head is where the... But you don't know because we don't. We know the photon bends around gravitational forces and eventually reaches us. So maybe it's not thirteen point eight years that way. It may be uh, if you take ways instead of the 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 highway, you're going along the, the ways route, and it seems like from this point to that point is la a long distance. But if you had the highway, you'd be there in no time. So so let me ask this to both of you because it seems like the same feeling of awe that drives you to be excited about the, either Star Trek or the blues or writing. And for you, physics, it's that's what keeps you going. That's what my book is all about. The fact that you brought a great physicist here to, to inspire us with what he knows and, he, and he's just d giving you tidbits that are commercially that everybody can understand, but what he understands and what he is thinking is so far beyond anything we can think. What he imagines, his lifetime, is, his brain is operating on a different level than ours. Not necessarily better, but on a different level, he's imagining things that we can't imagine or he's difficult to explain to dummies like us, but he can to, to his peers. But... What is in common is the awe and the wonder of the universe and our inability seemingly to understand like you it. said before, it's, it's storytelling. And you've said uh, you have to be able to really know something, you have to be able to explain it to a three-year-old. So it's all storytelling at some point to kind of get that awe, to get that expertise. Well, look at what the storytelling is. There were the fables, the uh, fairy tales, but the fairy tales contained a truth. And, and so when Hans Christian Andersen talked about uh, the wolf and the, and the Red Riding Hood, and there were messages there that were hidden behind the, the folds of the red cloak and the, and the basket. And there, uh, when Hansel and Gretel were pushed in the oven, I mean, they're based on all those fairy tales uh, of antiquity. There were fears and dreams and hopes of humanity involved in those fairy tales that people told around the fireplace because there was no television. Now we have the new fairy tales, which are dis when the great physicist uh, uh, Stephen Hawking says on one pronouncement, all information on the, on the event horizon goes into the black hole and never comes out. It all disappears. And a few years later, he says, nah, yeah, it comes out. I don't know how it comes out, but it comes out. He's changed his mind because based on uh, further observation or further thinking, he's changed his mind. It's a fairy tale. 
Right, but it reminds me of Star Trek, you know, to go where no man has gone before. This is at, at the fringes of science, at the fringes of... He's working on the fringes of the fringes. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> you know, these story tells, uh, these stories have religious theological implications. When I was a child, I realized that my parents were Buddhists. And in Buddhism, there is no God, there's no beginning, there's no end, there's just nirvana. But I was, I was raised as a Presbyterian, in which case there is a God, there is a, a story about Genesis and God says, let there be light. So I had these mutually contradictory ideas in my head all my life. But you see, with string theory, we can now meld these two parables into one coherent theory, that our universe did have a big bang. Our universe did have a instant of creation like Genesis, but it's a bubble and it's a bubble that coexists with other bubbles. And what is it floating in? Nirvana. So there is a Nirvana. So now we hear of, uh, of a great scientist whose traditions, uh, uh, the way he was brought up affect the way he thinks, Presbyterian and Buddhist. I admire both of those philosophies, especially Buddhism, which has a transcendence of of our human body and not, and everything is forever uh, in 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 Buddhism. But he's affected by his upbringing. He can't escape the earthly cloying fingers of his upbringing. And so he's uniting two philosophies that may or may not exist, okay? So Big Bang is wonderful, but it only came into being, the theory only came into being, what, 20 years ago, 50 years ago? Uh, in the 1930s, it really so, took off. 80 years ago, somebody said, you know, Big Bang, oh my God, you know tectonic plates. Well, of course tectonic plates, you idiot. Only came into being what? 30 years ago. I mean, all these new theories, well, of course you evolve. I mean, if you don't evolve, you die, and then you don't evolve. And that which evolves lives. I mean, it's like one and one. But some things, it feels like some things we definitely know. For instance, we know how a car drives. We can make a car that drives, and everybody around the world will make this, roughly the same kind of car to drive the same way. Some physics we understand, but it still seems like on the fringes, like, the enterprise would go where no man has gone before. You're going in your research where no man has gone before, but everything in there, we sort of know. It's not total story. No, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> we, how, how do you feel about him saying We that? know nothing, okay? We don't know anything. Because Big Bang came 80 years ago. 80 years ago, my lifetime, yeah. okay? Somebody said, I got a theory of how this all came about from this fine, infinitely pinpoint of energy, this thing exploded and became our universe. It's great. It's romance. It's got beauty. It's got, it's, it's, uh, it's got the theory is, uh, there's a word for it that has a beauty to it. It's synchronicity. It takes in everything. It's beautiful. It's a concept that these minds can grasp and say, that is perfect. That's a perfect scientific theory. But it only came in 80 years ago. What's going to happen tomorrow? Well, what do you think? He's saying basically everything is story. Everything is changeable. Yes and no. We can describe the universe from the size of a proton all the way up to 
all the way out to maybe several billion gal uh, light years into outer space. Everything in between, we have a very good understanding. However, at the edge, that's where all hell breaks loose. At the edge, we have dark energy, dark matter. We have the whole possibility of, of black holes. But in between, yes, we have a very good understanding. In this room, we know the confines of this room. We know if there's a rat hole there, there's a bad joke there. You know, the, in this room, we know. But when you step outside the door, we don't know what's out there. Well, what is that? That what's out there, the car can come crashing in here momentarily. It, what's out there is as equally valid to this room as this room is to there. You can't separate the two. So we don't know several billion miles out there. Uh, we know from here to several billion miles out. We know exactly what's going on. It's just, we know three billion, but four billion miles out there, we don't know. You see the fallaciousness of all that? Right, so what, what's interesting to me just from the point of view of, okay, I'm clearly never gonna know any of the facts of anything, but what I do appreciate is it's sort of like you guys have the ignition key turned on of that sense of awe. And that's, that's it. And that's what is a driving force for both of you. I mean, you're both, I, how old are you? Uh, 71. Ask him why you hesitated. Because <laughs> I'll be 72. <laughs> Momentarily. <laughs> right, right after this microphone closes. <laughs> no, in a few months. Okay, so, so, so you both look and act and behave like you're 23 years old, just getting out of school and about to begin this great adventure. Do you think it's like, for, for giving advice to me, someone who would like to live so enthusiastically, what triggers for both of you that sense of... Buy my book. Uh, buy my book. <laughs> Your book does have a lot of it. It's yeah. story after story yeah. of when you have that awe. Exactly. You know, many physicists come up to me and they say they do not believe they are aliens in outer space because the known laws of physics do not allow for interstellar travel. Now, my attitude is, if they really are aliens in outer space, they could be millions of years ahead of us, in which case new laws of physics begin to open up for them and become commonplace. Therefore, only with the known laws of physics can we say that we don't think there's any alien life out there. However, there's, our, there's a boundary beyond which we're clueless. We don't know about dark energy, dark matter. We don't know about black holes. And the quantum theory holds everything together. And that's a mystery. And so what I'm saying is I keep open the idea that civilizations in outer space, which are millions of years ahead of us, could be using a whole new technology that we can only dream about. And there's only another fact that you have to be aware of, that it, it seems that the, one of the imperative forces of nature is life, that life seeks niches of all kinds to come whatever life is. On Earth, we see that everywhere. It doesn't seem logical that in a crevice somewhere near here, let alone the billions upon billions of opportunities that life has a chance to grow, that it isn't growing. And that, that evolution, is, evolution is like one plus one. It has to happen. If it's not working, it's gonna die. If it's working, it's gonna grow. It's as simple as that. That's evolution. So the evolutionary pattern has to work. So if something is bacterial over here now, in a billion years, it's going to be more than, than, uh, than uh, bacteria because of evolution. And from that point of view, I think the 
universe is alive is a, 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 a cacophony of life. I mean, that could explain, like in Star Trek, basically, every alien you encounter is roughly our level of evolution is, you know, they're almost like humans, but... You know what I want to say to you? Get a life. <laughs> <laughs> okay, when you said that in your SNL sketch way back in the day, and you were a Trekkie, and many people here were, were Trekkies, including me, did you get a lot of hate mail? No, I, I said it. There was no Twitter. I, I may have. I don't read. I don't read the hate mail. But, but, by, by, it was meant as joshing. Uh, I, I heard they played it on this day that I've been on. They played that a bit of that. We're going to leave right now, the both of us. Uh, they played that moment there, and I do say, get an apartment and get a you know look at the. Um, it was meant lovingly. And and I mean that lovingly to you because you're awake with awe and wanting to know, and that's the key to everything that we're talking about. Well, that's what keeps us going: the sense of the mysterious. That's what Einstein said. The most precious emotion that we can experience is the feeling of the mysterious. That's what keeps us going. Otherwise, why do we wake up in the morning? No, because there's a whole new frontier out there waiting to be discovered. And you, you express this very well in the book, Bill, in the sense that you say not every aspect is going to be filled with pleasure, like waking up at five in the morning to record a blues album might not be your ideal, but just the whole idea of here's, here's this new mysterious adventure I can enter in at the age of 87 or at the age of 72. There's a new thing I can discover that is going to unlock some of the secrets of the universe. It's this sense of awe in each story you have. I'm glad book. you feel that way because that's the way the book was written. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Bill Shatner, Live Long and dot, 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 What I Learned Along the Way. It's a great book. There are many stories in here that are, are brand new. Despite eight decades of people telling your story, this actually has some new stories that I had never read before about you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Michio Kaku author of a billion books, but uh, The Physics of Humanity, I think, was the book. Future of Humanity, yeah, right. Future of Humanity. Uh, humanity in Outer Space. Thank you guys so much for a coming pleasure. on the show. pleasure. Yeah, thank you. The legends are true. With overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.